listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Here we are, the seventh and final Sunday in Eastertide. It's a Sunday that falls between Ascension Day, the 40th day after Easter Day, and Pentecost, next Sunday, the 50th day. And in the flow of the Luke-Acts narrative, it's a a 10-day in-between sort of period. Jesus has been raised from death, not as a resuscitated corpse, but in resurrection. He is more utterly and newly alive than anyone had ever before been. He has walked with his people, shared food with them, taught them and touched them and loved them, all the while telling them that he would not be with them for long, at least not in that form. But don't worry, he kept reassuring them. They were not to be left orphaned, for soon the Spirit of God would be with them in a whole new way. And then on that 40th day, he had gone from them. He had ascended to God, which is, of course, the only way that an ancient people would be able to understand or describe his being again joined to the Father. It is the story with which Luke ends his gospel account and the one that he again uses to open the book of Acts. And so the ascension story stands as, a, as something of a hinge or a bridge between those two books. And then they wait. They wait for ten days until Pentecost, till the, the coming of the Spirit of God in this new way. But of course, they didn't know if they were going to wait ten days or ten weeks or ten years. All he had told them was to go and to wait. They knew that they'd experienced the aliveness of Jesus, And they knew that they trusted his promise that there was indeed going to be a new day. Their waiting was largely given to prayer, Luke tells us. But there was also this one very practical matter that they felt they needed to attend to. They needed to select somebody to take the space that had been left by Judas. They did that by having a discernment raising up two possible candidates, and then by casting lots. An accepted method of discernment in the ancient world, I'm tempted to suggest to our current bishop that maybe we could cast lots for his successor. Don't know. In any case, the lot fell on Matthias. Now, what's interesting is that they felt no need to repeat this practice of adding another when another one of the twelve died. They weren't establishing a standing committee of twelve for all eternity, and thank goodness for that. The church has managed to set up more than enough standing committees on its own steam, most of which I have studiously avoided being a member of, And we'd not have done well to have some super committee of 12 that claimed divine appointment. 
No, they weren't setting something in stone like that. What they were doing was something that at that moment held enormous symbolic significance. Jesus had called 12, and they'd come to see that as an echo of the 12 tribes of Israel. And now with Judas dead, it's interesting that even after the profound betrayal, Peter is able to say of Judas that, quote, he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Well, now with him dead, they needed to symbolically restore the wholeness of that original 12. Does, though, leave us with the challenge of the betrayal and of the enigma of Judas. He was numbered among us and allotted his share in this ministry, and yet, what happened? This question is actually a a point of contact between the Acts reading this evening and then tonight's reading from the Gospel according to John. You see, in the Acts reading, Peter says... Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. Well, in the John passage, Jesus prays, Father, I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. So according to the book of Acts, Judas's actions of betrayal was foretold, while in John it speaks of the one destined to be lost. Foretold and destined and both linked to the Hebrew scriptures, those words make it sound as if Judas was kind of hardwired, predestined, fated to do what he did. And that always strikes me as a really tough one. The rock musical Jesus Christ Superstar, the Judas character even cries out in protest that he's been set up. My mind is in darkness now, he sings. My God, I am sick. I've been used. And you knew it all the time. You have murdered me. You have murdered me. But that seems so outside of the character of God, to set someone up for their own death in that tragic betrayal. And particularly outside of the character as it's revealed in the incarnation itself, which is all about God pouring God's self into the world in the life and person of Jesus. Perhaps then, what is foretold, what is destined, is that in any group of twelve very human characters living in a deep and violent political time, marked by fear and confusion, even as they sought to follow this different leader with his distinctive vision, in any group like that, in those kind of times, there will be the weak link. There will be someone, inevitably someone, who will lose heart, give up on the call they'd initially followed, turn inward in a way that's self-serving and self-preserving and tragically, ultimately, self-destructive. Maybe, 
Maybe that's what's meant. We, we don't know, but what we do know is that Judas did betray Jesus and that in doing so, it actually destroyed himself. So where did that leave the other 11? Well, first of all, casting lots to select Matthias as the new 12th member. But clearly there would have been much more to it than that as well. Here I'm really struck by some things that the New Testament scholar Frank Crouch says about Judas and his effect on the others. It seems clear, Crouch writes, that Judas' betrayal of Jesus left a deep wound in early Christian communities. One act indelibly marks his name, his history, and the church's memory. Judas, the one who betrayed him. The four Gospels make that specific connection 12 times. Judas, the one who betrayed him. And then Crouch continues. He writes, The reason Judas' betrayal cuts so deep lies in the other way that all four Gospels identify him as one of the twelve. Powerful opponents might call for Jesus' execution. Pilate might have sentenced him to death. Roman soldiers might have nailed him to the cross, but they were outsiders. Judas was one of the most inside of the insiders. When Jesus sent out his disciples to preach, teach, and heal, Judas was among them. Except for John's allegation that Judas was both betrayer and embezzler, that he'd been stealing from the common purse, the Gospels offer no mention that prior to Gethsemane, Judas was any less gifted or effective than any of the other twelve. Isn't that something to ponder? Three years in that company, in a bond of discipleship and friendship together, called into ministry, witnessing all that he witnessed. He was there at the Last Supper, and he would have shared in the bread and wine. He doesn't leave until after the meal is over. Judas was there in the upper room when Jesus knelt down and washed their feet. He was utterly and entirely one of them. And then came the appalling act of betrayal, selling out their beloved teacher for silver. Betrayal. Betrayal by leaders is a terrible thing. And maybe especially so in the church. I had a conversation with someone this past week about the well-known and highly influential Mennonite theologian, John Howard Yoder. John Howard Yoder's book, The Politics of Jesus, had an, an enormous impact in Anabaptist circles, but across the wider church as well. Nonviolence lay at the heart of the Christian proclamation, Yoder contended. And until we see the profound peacemaking that sat at the very center of Jesus' life and ministry, we will not be able to mount a truly Christian ethics, all built around peace and nonviolence. 
That was Yoder's gift, and yet, over the course of 20-plus years, John Howard Yoder was sexually abusive of women students, using his place of power within the university to do violence. Not only that, but it's now clear that the universities at which he taught in the 80s and 90s and the church structures to which he was supposed to be accountable tried to quietly shuffle matters to the side. For those who had been deeply influenced by the work, the thought of John Howard Yoder, huge questions now loom because of his betrayal. Can we even acknowledge his influence? Can we cite his books in our own work? Can we have students read his books? The damage done by betrayal can echo for generations. The scars left by Judas, comments Frank Crouch, the scars left by Judas or others who betray and damage those around them will remain. The scar tissue will be there in those communities for time. But they do not need to define or stop a community's ministry. God will make a way for people of resurrection to rise. Which brings me back to that decision to draw lots, to designate Matthias to fill the space left by Judas. I think that the appointment of a new twelfth disciple was in some real sense an act of resistance and resilience and ultimately an act of faith. What Judas did is not going to be forgotten, but it's also not going to capture them or to hold them back in disillusioned fear. That day they were saying, that day they were saying, we are 12 once again. God is making a way for a people of resurrection to rise. Then and now and always. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.